The boarding house belonged to one Bonifacio Casasola, a local miner. It was decidedly small when compared to similar lodgings in this region of southern Bolivia, which is perhaps what made it ideal for two of its guests. Three days before, the selfsame pair of lodgers had robbed a courier just outside the mining town of San Vicente, a stone's throw from the Argentine border, a fact the proprietor didn't know about them at the time. Senor Casasola had indeed heard of the incident, but hadn't thought much of it. That is, until he noticed that the two guests had checked in with a mule from a local mine, as proven by the brand on the creature's rump. Suspicious of this, he first notified a cavalry regiment stationed nearby, who in turn contacted local authorities. That same evening, a band comprised of soldiers, the town's chief of police, and the mayor, as well as some of the latter's officials, surrounded Casasola's boarding house with the intent of arresting these two lodgers. Upon approaching the property, however, shots rang out from within, fired by the bandits. One soldier was killed in the crossfire, while another was grazed by a stray bullet. The ensuing shootout lasted for several more hours until, at around 2 a.m., everything came to an abrupt halt. In the silence that followed, the mayor later reported hearing a man's screams coming from within the lodgings, followed by two successive gunshots. Uncertain whether this was a ruse or not, the authorities waited until sunrise to enter the boarding house, at which time they found two bodies riddled with bullet holes, particularly in the arms and legs. Closer inspection of the corpses was believed to be those of American outlaws Butch Cassidy and Harry Longabaugh, the latter of whom was better known by the nickname of the Sundance Kid, who had been terrorizing people throughout the interior of South America for the better part of seven years. Longabaugh had an entry wound on the forehead, indicating that Cassidy had perhaps shot him to put him out of his misery, while Cassidy himself had an exit wound in his temple, indicative of death by suicide. But was it really the end of the pair who'd rained down so much trouble and terror on the peoples of two continents? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, much of what we know about Butch Cassidy comes down to us from the annals of historical legend and has been cemented in popular culture through various forms of media. A landmark film directed by George Roy Hill, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman respectively, was particularly integral in immortalizing said stories and placing them within the collective consciousness. But it being made by Hollywood, it naturally took some liberties. What, then, are the real honest-to-God facts surrounding these two real-life characters? The man we know as Butch Cassidy was born Robert Leroy Parker on April 13, 1866, in Beaver, Utah Territory. Utah wouldn't become a state, the 45th in the Union, for another 30 years, and was the first of 13 children. His parents, Maximilian Parker and Anne Campbell Parker, nay Gillies, were immigrants from Great Britain, whose families had converted to the Mormon faith while still living in that country. Maximilian had been just 12 years old when his family settled in Salt Lake City, while Anne had been 14 when her family came to America. The two met in the Utah Territory and were married in July of 1865, after which time they went on to establish a ranch where they farmed and raised cattle in the small town of Circleville. It was here, in this rural, idyllic setting, that the young Robert Parker grew up in a simple log cabin that has since been designated a historic and cultural landmark. For reasons that are unclear, Robert ran away from home at the age of 16 and soon found employment at a dairy farm in another part of the Utah Territory. While working there, he met fellow employee and part-time cattle thief Mike Cassidy, who served as his mentor and father figure throughout this brief stint. It was Mike who taught the lad how to steal horses. Soon, however, Robert was on the move again, though he never forgot his old friend. Upon serving as a butcher's apprentice in Rock Springs, Wyoming, he earned the nickname Butcher, which quickly morphed into Butch. To finalize his new identity, young Robert took Mike's surname as his own. Thus, Butch Cassidy was born. 
These early employment opportunities and itinerant lifestyle hardly seem like the foundations for a life of crime. Like many Americans of the day who traveled west, they lived itinerant lives, often working various odd jobs in or along the frontier until they could stand on their proverbial two feet. In other words, Butch Cassidy's vocation as a criminal had to start somewhere, and his first turn was decidedly minor. Around 1880, he visited a clothier shop in a neighboring town from his home in Circleville. Finding it closed for the night, he decided to break in, stealing a pair of jeans and a slice of pie, leaving behind an IOU promising to return with the correct payment during his next visit. The shopkeeper was naturally incensed and pressed charges, though the lad was later acquitted by a jury. But this, as we know, was only the beginning. He served as a ranch hand on various ranches until 1884, at which time he moved to the town of Telluride in Colorado on the pretense of seeking more permanent employment, though, in actuality, he was delivering stolen horses to different buyers. Over the next three years, he lived the life of a cattle driver, dividing his time between Montana and Wyoming before returning to Telluride in 1887, where he met one Matt Warner, the owner of a racehorse. The two went on to enter the steed into various competitions throughout the region, splitting the winnings evenly between them. It was this man who'd go on to become one of Cassidy's first accomplices. Unsatisfied with supplementing their incomes by horse racing alone, the pair decided to rob a bank. Warner employed two of his personal acquaintances to aid them in the heist, the brothers McCarty. This would mark Butch Cassidy's descent into hard crime when, on June 24, 1889, when he was 24 years old, he, along with Warner and the McCartys, robbed the San Miguel Valley Bank in Telluride. They made off with some $21,000, the equivalent of $684,000 in today's money, and quickly fled to a place known as Robber's Roost, you can't make this up, a remote hideout in southeastern Utah. There they stayed until things cooled down back home. With his share of the stolen cash, Cassidy purchased a ranch just outside of Dubois, Wyoming. As he was never financially successful at ranching, this enterprise served as a front for different illicit activities. You see, the ranch was just 180 miles, 290 kilometers, west of a natural geological formation in the eastern part of the state, known as the Hole in the Wall. It was here, along the formidable rocky terrain, that gangs of outlaws would hold themselves up to hide away from the prying eyes of local authorities. Cassidy did business with such criminals on the run, using his ranch as a facade. Soon, people across the state, particularly those involved in more untoward activities, recognized the signature Reverse E, Box E, that served as his own personal brand and logo. It was through these channels that he soon found love in the form of Ann Bassett, a fellow outlaw and rancher whose father had done business with him, providing him with beef and fresh horses. But the romance had to be put on hold, for later that year, Cassidy was arrested in Lander, Wyoming, on charges of horse theft, along with operating a protection racket from his ranch. The sentence was two years in the Wyoming State Prison in Laramie, though he only ended up serving 18 months before being pardoned and released in January of 1896 by then-Governor William Alfred Richards. While the fledgling outlaw and his beloved rekindled their romance upon his release from prison. His brief affair with her older sister, Josie, stirred things up a bit between them, before ultimately returning to normal. As you can see, he was clearly a man of questionable morals in all facets of his life. Not long after having served his sentence, Cassidy would go on to form an outlaw gang of his own. Having met many quote-unquote influential criminals in his time as a rancher, he'd made several close friends and business partners along the way, including Will News Carver, George Flatnose Curry, Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick, William Ellsworth Elsie Lay, 
Harvey Kid Curry Logan, and Harry Tracy. There was even a woman in the mix, one Laura Bullion, a rare but not entirely unheard of thing at the time. It was these who'd serve as the group's inaugural members, at which time they'd settle on the name of the Wild Bunch, after the name the contemporary Doolin Dalton gang of Oklahoma sometimes referred to themselves. Their first job, to use mafia slang, took place on August 13, 1896, and was the robbery of the bank at Montpellier, Idaho, where they made off with some $7,000. It was around this time, shortly after this heist, that Cassidy fatefully first crossed paths with Harry Alonso Longabaugh and recruited him into the gang, christening him with the nickname of the Sundance Kid. Soon, Cassidy's own girlfriend, Anne Bassett, joined the fold, as did Elsie Lay's girlfriend, Maud Davis. After the Montpellier job, the four of them reconvened at Robber's Roost until things cooled down. All the while, the four planned their next robbery, which was an ambush on a small group of men delivering the payroll of the Pleasant Valley Coal Company to the mining town of Castlegate, Utah, on April 22, 1897. They made off with a sack of silver coins, which they divvied up amongst them in their perch at Robber's Roost. But it was the Wild Bunch's next heist that garnered them widespread attention and a considerable amount of notoriety. On June 2nd, 1899, they robbed the Union Pacific Overland Flyer, a passenger train, just outside the town of Wilcox, Wyoming. A massive manhunt ensued, with many notable local lawmen of the day taking part. A gunfight broke out in the aftermath of the robbery, with George Curry and Kid Curry shooting one sheriff, Joe Hazen, dead. Upon receiving word of this, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, one of the country's foremost investigative organizations at the time, became involved, employing the services of Tom Horn, an assassin for hire, and dispatching one of their own sleuths, Charlie Syringo, to track down and kill, if necessary, the band of outlaws. The only problem was that the Wild Bunch tended to scatter, like cockroaches in the light, in all directions immediately following an attack, making it almost impossible to track any one of them down. From there, the bandits would reconvene at one of three predetermined locations, Robber's Roost in Utah, the Hole in the Wall Formation in Wyoming, or a brothel owned by one Madame Fanny Porter down in San Antonio, Texas. That isn't to say that they always got off scot-free. The first arrest of a Wild Bunch member took place on July 11, 1899, immediately following a robbery of a Colorado and Southern Railroad train near Folsom, New Mexico. In the shootout that followed, Elsie Lay shot and killed sheriffs Edward Farr and Henry Love, after which time he was apprehended by the authorities. He was later convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison at the New Mexico State Penitentiary. So Butch Cassidy's now-notorious gang was down one member, but this setback wouldn't stop them from continuing their crime spree. By mid-1899, however, the group's nefarious leader boldly approached Utah Governor Heber Wells to negotiate and draw up the terms for a potential amnesty. Talk about ballsy. The governor advised him to ask the Union Pacific Railroad to drop all criminal charges and complaints against the outlaw for the Overland Flyer incident a couple months prior. Talks even went as far as Union Pacific Chairman, E.H. Harriman, agreeing to meet with Cassidy personally to discuss the terms. For a while, it seemed as if the Wild Bunch would be exonerated, but their greed ruled out when, on August 29, 1900, they robbed yet another Union Pacific train, this time near Tipton, Wyoming. Needless to say, this event single-handedly ended all talks of amnesty. But, as it was, the Wild Bunch's days were numbered. On February 28, 1900, another one of its members, one Lonnie Logan, a newer recruit, had been killed in a shootout with local law enforcement in Wyoming. Exactly one month later, News Carver and George Curry, after using the money stolen from the Wilcox train robbery, were pursued by a posse out of St. John's, Arizona. A gunfight also ensued, at which time two deputies, Andrew Gibbons and Frank Lesseur, were killed. The bandits narrowly escaped, though death was hot on their trail. On April 17th, Curry himself was murdered in yet another shootout with authorities, this time in Grand County, Utah. Upon receiving word of both Logan's and Curry's deaths, 
Kid Curry took matters into his own hands and retaliated by killing both Grand County Sheriff John Tyler and Deputy Sam Jenkins just outside of Moab, Utah. Though News Carver had survived the St. John's ordeal, it wouldn't be long before death would come a-knocking for him as well. On July 3, 1901, the gang, led by Kid Curry, held up a Great Northern train not far from Wagner, Montana, making off with some $60,000, the equivalent of $2,110 in today's money. In their usual split-up, however, a posse led by one Sheriff Elijah Bryant caught up with Carver and shot him dead. Four months and two days later, on November 5th, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency caught up with Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick at a resort in St. Louis and arrested him. The following morning, Laura Bullion was found in the lobby in the same hotel, ready to check out with the valise weighed down by $8,500 in unsigned banknotes that had been taken in the Great Northern train robbery. She, too, was taken into custody. As for Kid Curry, he ended up killing two more police officers, William Dinwiddle and Robert Saylor, in a shootout in Knoxville, Tennessee on December 13, 1901, before making his escape and returning to Montana. With the Wild Bunch having all but forcefully been disbanded, combined with the several law enforcement agencies who were now hot on their trail, Cassidy and his friend Longabaw, the Sundance Kid, knew that they had to do something. Staying in the United States was no longer an option, as it seemed that, no matter where they went, they'd be hunted down, captured, and worse, put to death. So it was that they fled, along with Longabaw's girlfriend at a place, to New York, where they hopped aboard a British steamship, the Herminius, bound for, of all places, Buenos Aires, Argentina, to throw the steamer company off their scent, Cassidy posed and disguised himself as one James Ryan, the quote-unquote brother of Etta Place. In reality, she didn't have a brother. Thus, they set off for South America, thinking that they'd eluded their fate. But did they really? What new exploits awaited them in the wilds of the interior of this southern continent? To find out, tune in next week for the second half and exciting conclusion of Butch Cassidy's fantastic but absolutely true story, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. Happy trails, and I'll see y'all next time.